19 in particular is really where our focus is going to be, but we'll read verses 18 through 21 in their entirety, and we'll also be reading and looking at the companion passage in Ephesians chapter 5, but really focusing tonight and picking on the husbands. It's only fair after the time we spent last time uh, looking at the role of the wife and what that sanctification looks like in the Christian household in the life of the wife. Uh, Paul now turns his attention uh, to the men, to the husbands. And so Colossians chapter 3, verses 18 through 21. Colossians 3, 18 through 21. Paul began this chapter... Uh, by really just giving us an introduction to what we could call sanctification. Uh, We got to look at both aspects of a Christian sanctification. There are two, uh, a positive and what we might call a negative aspect. Paul spent some time looking at uh, the Christian's mortification. That's what we might call the negative, that aspect of how we need to put to death those old sins, those old lifestyles, those old habits that we had before Christ came and saved us and made us new. And Paul also spent some time looking at uh, the positive aspect of our sanctification, what we call our vivification. Uh, It's not enough to just put to death. We now have to walk forward. We now have to uh, make anew and renew and put on the new clothes of the new man. In verses 15 through 17, Paul began to get a little bit more uh, 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 boots on the ground, if you will, with our sanctification, and we got to see there in verses 15 through 17 uh, what it looks like when we live that sanctification out in the life of the body, among our brothers and sisters in the church. And in our passage at hand, where we were last week, where we'll be uh, tonight, where we'll be uh, at least until we get through verses 21, uh, there's going to be at least a couple more sermons in this passage. Paul is giving us instructions on what that sanctification looks like when it's lived out in the household. Now that's not to say that the passage on living out in the church isn't important. Certainly it is. Certainly we need that encouragement. But how often are we at the church? Maybe not as much as we should be. But we're with our families every single day. We're with our wives, with our husbands, with our children every single day. Uh, there's, there's no break. <laughs> it is constant. It is, it is ongoing. And so Paul gives us, I think, some much needed attention here. He gives us what God's word would have for us. What does that sanctification look like lived out in the family, in the household? You know, put it in another way, kind of the main theme of this little letter is that Christ is first. Christ is greatest. Christ is indeed the preeminent Lord of everything, of creation and redemption and anything else that we could think of. Christ stands supreme over it all. And so what would it look like if we as Christians lived in accordance with that reality with our wives, with our husbands, with our children, with our parents? Paul begins his instructions on the Christian household. He began that last time we gathered in this book by giving attention to Uh, The submissive wife, always a very popular passage and a popular topic. Uh, And today, he's going to turn his attention to the husband. So if you think you got off easy, I promise you didn't. Especially if you look at the companion passage in Ephesians 5, Paul spends a lot more time giving instruction to us husbands than he does to the wife. I don't don't know what that says. You can make your own assumptions. And so that's what we're going to look at tonight. What, What characterizes the Christian husband? The answer simply from the start, is is love. And so let's pray one more time, ask for God's blessing, 
as we hear his word preached, and then we'll hear what he has for us. Let's pray. Almighty God and gracious Father, we thank you. We thank you for our songs that we've gotten to sing. We thank you for the blessing that is prayer. That us fallen human beings can enter into the throne room of grace and do so as your word tells us with, with confidence, with boldness. How insane a thought that we can come before uh, the terrifying almighty king of everything and, and talk to him. And what's more, in confidence of knowing that you hear us, that you want us to pray to you, that you want us to come to you, that you want us to bring our hurts and our wants and, and everything else before you. And Father, we thank you for your word, that you saw it fit in your grace and your mercy to give us everything we need for life and godliness here in 66 books. Father, we pray now as we hear your word preached that you would grant us eyes to see, that you would make our ears able to hear, and hear in a way that listens, in a way that obeys. And Father, that you would soften our hearts to be able to receive the word of God as it is preached. Father, we pray all of this to your glory and your people's good. Amen. Colossians 3, we're going to read verses 18 through 21, but particularly focusing on verse 19. Hear now God's inerrant word. Wives, submit to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. And husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. Children, obey your parents in everything, for this pleases the Lord. Fathers, do not provoke your children, lest they become discouraged. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our Lord will stand forever. Amen. A monk by the name of Martin Luther once said that the Christian is supposed to love his neighbor. And since his wife is his nearest neighbor, she should be his deepest love. And whether we've thought about it in that way or not, that, that really is what this commandment is tonight. Paul is simply, I think, expounding upon Christ's summary of the law. When Christ was asked, what is the greatest commandment? We remember what he told the people gathered. That the first is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And the second is what? That we should love our neighbor as ourself. And what closer neighbor do we have than our spouse, husbands, than our wife? What God offers to us from his word today is this. That love, above all else, is what should characterize the Christian husband. As submission is what characterizes the Christian wife, so love characterizes the Christian husband. One might expect, after reading the commandment to wives, that we would find Paul commanding the husbands, husbands, rule your wives. But that's not what Paul said. Paul tells husbands, love your wives. As the Lord grows the Christian wife in her sanctification, she will grow in submission to her husband. And likewise, as the Lord grows the Christian husband in his sanctification, we will find that he will grow in his love of his wife. But I think the question that stands before us is, is what is that? 
especially in our day and age, we can't just assume that we're on the same page about what that little four-letter word means, can we? What is love? What, what kind of love are we talking about here? We live in a culture and a time where that word seems to have lost any and all absolute meaning at all. It's just all relative, isn't it? What love means for you might not be what love means for me, but that's not how God uses it here. God's word does not leave it up in the air as some relative, undefined thing. In fact, God, out of a plethora of Greek words that he could have used, chose one word in particular to define the husband's love for his wife, a love that is used commonly in the scriptures for God's love for his people a word which we should know and be somewhat familiar with, agape. What Paul offers to us in Colossians in an abbreviated form, we will look at a little bit tonight. He offers much more fully, almost a treatise on the husband's love in Ephesians chapter 5, verses 25 through 33. And remember, as I mentioned last time, both of these letters were written. Uh, though they were written to particular churches, they were intended to be what we call circular letters. Ephesus wasn't that far away from Colossae, and so as one church would get it and read it and spend some time with it, it was expected that they would disseminate it and pass it along to the other churches. And so they would be familiar. Between our two passages, Colossians and Ephesians, that we're going to be bouncing back and forth between this evening, we'll find that husbands are commanded to love their wives three ways. Unceasingly, sacrificially, and sanctifyingly unceasingly, sacrificially, and sanctifyingly. Several years ago, it's probably been about a a decade now, um, I was just starting to figure out what what preaching looked like and what it meant and uh, was was reading a a local paper at, uh, which was something, just going to be honest, was completely new to me. Uh, it's not something I expected to be doing, but I had a, uh, a preaching professor recommend it. He said it was a good way to find examples and illustrations, and I, I have to agree now, 10 years later, I, I found some good ones in the local papers. Well, about a decade ago, uh, a local paper uh, published an article entitled uh, The Seven Ages of the Married Cold. The Seven Ages of the Married Cold, and uh, there in that, in that little article, it revealed how the reaction of a husband to a sick wife changes as the years go on in their marriage. And it went something like this. Uh, in the first year, uh, the wife gets a cold, and as soon as the husband hears the first sniffles, he comes to her and he says, Honey, sugar, love of my life, most dearest wife, I'm so worried about you. You've got a bad sniffle and there's no telling about these things with with all of this strep throat going around and pneumonia. And so I'm going to put you in the hospital this afternoon. We're going to go and see the doctor. We're going to get a checkup and get a good rest. And I know the food's not the greatest, so you just tell me what restaurant you want me to go to and I'll pick out whatever you want since you don't feel very good this afternoon. I've got it all arranged. I've already talked with the floor superintendent over there and we're going to take care of you. That's the first year. Second year of marriage, the wife gets sick again, and it goes a little bit differently. She says, listen, darling, I don't like the sound of that cough. And so I called the doctor and asked him to rush over. Now you just go and get you some rest. We fast forward to the third year, and it gets a little bit different again. She gets the sniffles, starts starts choking up a little bit. And he comes to her and he says, you know, maybe you better lie down. Uh, Nothing like a good rest when you're not feeling good. I bet you'll... 
feel a lot better when you wake up. Fourth year rolls around, she gets sick again, and now the husband comes to her and he says, now look, we, be sensible, honey. After you fed the kids and washed the dishes and finished the floor, you better go lay down for a nap. The fifth year rolls around, and the wife gets a cough and the sniffles again, and the husband, being the good loving husband he is, comes to her and says, you know what, honey, here's a couple of aspirin, it'll probably make you feel better. The sixth year, she gets the cough and the sniffles again, and the husband tells her, I wish you'd just gargle or something. Instead of sitting around coughing all day, you're going to get me sick. The seventh year rolls around, and the wife comes again with the sniffles, with the cold, with the cough. And the husband says, for Pete's sake, stop sneezing. Are you trying to give me pneumonia? It's the decline of marriage is seen through a common cold, and it's, it's a little bit funny, but it's not really that far off from the reality of what many of us have seen in friends' marriages, hopefully not our own, in marriages throughout our culture. If you turn on any sitcom, this is all too common, the example that we find. Though my marriage is far from perfect, we celebrated seven years this year, and if Carly were here, I would hope that if you asked her, she would be honest enough to tell you that that's not my response when she gets cold or sick, though we're seven years in. We find here this evening love defined for us. Love defined, love made clear, love not left up in the air, love not left up for the couple or the individual husband or wife to decide. We're told that husbands are commanded to love their wives unceasingly, sacrificially, and sanctifyingly. And that doesn't stop after seven years, it doesn't stop after 15, it doesn't stop after 50. And so first, husbands are to love their wives unceasingly. Notice that Paul doesn't use some of the Greek words that were at his disposal. He didn't use the word phileo, a word which describes brotherly love, a love of friendship. He doesn't use the word eros, an erotic love. He chooses to use the word agape. It's the type of love with which God has loved his church. It's unending, it's unceasing, it's unchanging, it's never-ending. And notice with me just simply and almost what I would hope would be common sense, but it's not all too common anymore, that the command is not... Husbands love your wives when they deserve it. We looked at this a little bit last time with the command of wives to submit to your husbands, and it works the same both ways. The command is not husbands love your wives as long as they're being submissive. What's the command? The command is husbands love your wives. Period. No caveat, no exceptions. And in Ephesians, Paul makes it even more clear that this love is to be unceasing. Uh, when we're told their husbands love your wives, how? How are husbands to love their wives? As Christ has loved the church. And now while we certainly would have to admit it, it's easier to obey these commands when the other person is obeying their part of it too. When one spouse is obeying and expressing their part, certainly it's easier for the other spouse to do in turn. How much easier is it for a wife to submit to her husband and respect her husband when he's loving her well? Wives, do you find it a little bit easier when your husbands are, are loving you well, loving you as Christ loved the church? Surely. How much easier is it for a husband to love his wife when she's submitting to him well and respecting him well? Certainly it's easier. It's most definitely easier to follow these commands when each spouse is obeying and expressing their part well. But that's not how Paul words the commands. 
The Apostle Paul, inspired by the Holy Spirit, does not give qualifications on the commandments. The husband's love for his wife is not then a response to the wife's worthiness. It is not a response to the wife's submission. It is not a response to the wife's respect. But rather a response to the mandate of King Jesus. The Apostle did not say, wives, be submissive if and when he's loving you. And likewise, the command to husbands is not, husbands, love your wives as long as they're doing all of this on their end perfectly. It is not, husbands, love your wives as long as they're found worthy of your love that day. He simply said, wives, be submissive and husbands, love. And so we should consider as Paul himself calls our attention in Ephesians 5 to the love with which Christ loved the church. So let's consider exactly that. Consider the unceasing love with which Christ has loved us. His church, who is what to him? His bride. Even though we were and are undeserving of that love, as Romans 5 tells us, uh, what was our condition when Christ first showed his love to us? Well, we were not strong, we were weak. We were not holy and blameless and perfect. We were found to be ungodly. We had broken all of his laws and were enjoying every minute of it. We were not his children. We were following after the prince of the power of the air, Ephesians 2. We were enemies of God when he first showed his love to us. Romans 5 tells us that Christ loved us in this way. So much so that he even laid his life down for us. Even when we were enemies, ungodly, dead in our trespasses and sins, running after the ways and the courses of this world, Christ's love for his bride, the church, did not waver. It, it did not falter. It was and is and forever will remain unceasing. Consider even now, brothers and sisters, that even the best and most holy among us in this room, we sin each and every day. We place other gods before him in our hearts, whether that be money or power or prestige or work or school or fill in the blank. We take his name in vain. We, we, we don't keep his Sabbath day holy. We lie, we cheat, we steal, we covet, we lust. We feel hatred in our hearts. And if you're thinking, I, I don't know what you're talking about, I haven't felt that way in a while, just get stuck in traffic here now that Chick-fil-A is open over here on Veterans Boulevard. Get stuck over there for about 15 minutes around some people going about 10 under the speed limit. And trust me, no matter how good of a week you've been having, you'll, you'll become guilty of a few of these. Each of us sin, even on our best days, every day. And yet his love for us, his bride, his church is unceasing. We read over and over and over again in his word in that passage that was our call to worship this morning. The Lord is abounding in steadfast love. His love is unceasing. His love is unending. The Lord is gracious and merciful, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love. That word there, hesed, it conveys that he's been covenantally faithful to us. We have come into covenant with God. There are expectations on both ends of that, and God has kept and will continue to keep forever his end of the bargain perfectly. How perfectly have we kept ours? We fall short daily. 
Psalm 136, 26, His love endures forever. Romans 8, Paul poses the question, what can separate us from this love? Y'all are familiar with the passage? He goes to that kind of lengthy uh, list there. Not, not death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come. Paul says not powers, not, not heights, not, not depth, nor anything else in all creation. And, and we, we could add to that list in our thinking, not our own failures, not our sins, not our shortcomings, not our struggles, not our weaknesses. Oh, what of that can separate us from the love that God has for us in Christ Jesus? And, and Paul proclaims loudly, none of it, nothing, not, not anything can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. Because it's unceasing. It's an unceasing love that Christ has for his bride. And this husband's is how we have been commanded to love our wives. As Christ loved the church unceasingly. But you don't know how unsubmissive my wife is, some might think. Some might say. But you don't know how much she challenges me at every turn. You haven't met my wife. You know, you don't, you don't know what it's like at home. What does Paul say? Husbands, love your wives. You think it was that Paul was unaware of some of these struggles that marriages have? Quite the opposite. He, he, I guarantee you, he had heard all of it. And what's his command to husbands? Husbands, regardless of any of it, Love your wives. Even as Christ has loved the church, period. It's not to say that her behavior or attitude might not be wrong or sinful. Paul has already addressed the wife. But your love, husband, my love as a husband to my wife, your love as a husband to your wife, it doesn't hinge on her submissiveness. It doesn't hinge on her Worthiness. It doesn't hinge on the value that you feel in the moment that she's bringing. Husbands, love your wives, even as Christ loved the church, period. And he even adds there, and don't be harsh with them. Peter adds his own little warning where he says, to live with your wives in an understanding way. Don't, don't be harsh. Be understanding. Be patient. Love your wives, even as Christ has loved the church unceasingly, unchangingly. But I don't feel the same way I used to. And some of y'all might be thinking, well, Danny, you've only been married seven years. You know, stuff can change after seven years. Sometimes it might get harder. And look, it might. That might, that might be your argument. She's changed. She's not the same person she was when I met her, when I dated her, when I proposed. So what does Paul have to say to that? Husbands, love your wives, even as Christ has loved the church. Love here is a command. It's not an option. Paul's not saying, hey guys, if you feel like it, you know, it'd be really cool. If you get around to it, and it's working for you, Love your wives even as Christ loved the church. It's not an option. It's a command. It's a mandate in his holy word. And it's a verb. Love here biblically, the love of which the husband is supposed to have for his wife, it's not that cartoon butterfly feeling in your stomach. That's nice when we have it. 
can be there sometimes, but, but that's, not, that's not the essence of what Paul is talking about this evening. It's a command and it's a verb. There will come moments, there will come days in every marriage where you don't feel those butterfly feelings. I know none of y'all have experienced that, surely not. I'm sure you husbands wake up every single day, you wives wake up every single day, and y'all are just feeling just as much of those butterfly feelings as you did on day one. Certainly it's not y'all that I'm talking about. <laughs> Certainly not me, right? I feel that 24-7. But look, guys, there, there will come a day, there will come moments in every marriage where those feelings aren't there in the moment. And so, so what do we do then? What's your answer then, Paul? Husbands, love your wives, even as Christ loved the church. If anything, it's even more important to love your wife on the days where you don't feel it. If anything, it's even more important to love your wife in the days and in the moments where you don't feel those butterfly feelings in those stomachs. If anything, it's even more important to show love to your wife, to live out that love to your wife. When you don't feel as though right now she's being very deserving of it. This is why Paul told us, love your wife even as Christ loved the church. Does Christ love his bride, the church, only when we're found worthy of that love? I sure hope not. Does Christ only love his bride when he finds that we're doing our end of the bargain perfectly? Or does he love her in an unchanging and unceasing manner? And if God loves us unceasingly, how on earth... Husbands, could we find an excuse to not do so for our wives? Certainly there is more that we can plainly see in our wives that is deserving of our love than that which God finds in us. Husbands, love your wives first unceasingly and second, this point will go a lot quicker because it's pretty straightforward, I think, sacrificially. Paul writes in the companion passage in Ephesians 5, the second part of verse 25, that we're to love our wives as Christ loved the church, even as he gave himself up for her. And so what might it look like for husbands to love their wives sacrificially? Is this the common uh, modern mantra of happy wife, happy life? Is loving your wife sacrificially meaning you, at every turn, in every way, shape, and form, you hop into it, gentlemen, to do every single thing your wife wants you to do? Is that what it means to love your wife sacrificially? I think we find uh, a passage of Scripture in Philippians chapter 2 where Paul makes a connection between Christ's sacrifice and the mindset we should have towards others uh, that we could certainly apply uh, to this commandment here. Philippians chapter 2 would simply offer to you this, that if this passage here in Philippians is how the Christian ought to live to other Christians, to our neighbors in general. How much more so should it apply for the husband to his wife? Paul writes there in Philippians 2 that reflecting on the sacrifice of Christ, that sacrifice which he made for us, Paul commands, uh, do nothing from selfish ambition. Do nothing from conceit. But rather in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interest, but also to the interest of others. And so I think simply we could pose it in a question form. Husbands, are you looking to your own interests or to hers? Sometimes it's hard to get out of the mindset. 
I remember in premarital counseling, one of the most repeated pieces of advice that, that my pastor gave me was, Danny, you're going to think that you're a pretty unselfish person. You're going to think that you've grown in your years of being a Christian and in your life experience up until this point that you've become a pretty unselfish individual. And then you're going to get married. And you're going to come home from your honeymoon and real life is going to start in that marriage. And you're going to find out you're one of the most selfish human beings that have ever walked the face of the earth. And then as the years go on, you're going to feel yourself becoming more unselfish. You're going to get to a point where you feel like once more, you know what, I'm, I wasn't then, but now certainly through years of marriage I've grown out of any selfishness that I ever harbored in my heart. And then he said, and then you're going to have children. <laughs> and you're going, to, you're going to feel those feelings start all over again. And so I think even in our mindset, it can be a struggle, can it not? As we, as we go throughout our day and we're, we're thinking about our wants and our desires and our aspirations. Husbands, how often are your thoughts more so on the good of your wife than the good of yourself? Are you making decisions that you're making in humility? Are you considering her more significant than yourself? If she is a wife who is living a godly life in submission to you as her husband, if she is a wife that's seeking to respect her husband and seeking to submit to you as her husband, are you taking great concern and care and caution in the decisions that you make for your household and your family? that you're considering her above yourself? Are you sacrificing yourself, your wants, your needs, your expectations, your desires in the here and now for what's best for your bride, especially for her spiritual welfare? I think this leads us to our third point. Husbands, love your wives unceasingly, sacrificially, and sanctifyingly. Paul tells us in Ephesians 5, 26-27 that Christ loved the church in this way and gave himself up for why? What, what's the purpose? What's the goal of this love that Christ has for his bride and therefore that the husband should have for his bride? That he might sanctify her. Having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing that she might be holy and without blemish. Why did Christ die for the church? Why did Christ save you and I? It wasn't ultimately for our happiness, but for our holiness. It was to make us beautiful. Not because we were beautiful. It was to make His bride worthy. Not because He found her worthy. It was to make His bride holy. Not because she was holy. C.S. Lewis wrote of a difference between what he called a love of benevolence and a love of complacency. And he argued that really of, of all the different types of love, that whether you, what you find in the Greek or the Hebrew or fill in the blank, uh, that they can all fall into one of these two categories, either a, a love of benevolence or a love of complacency. Now, love of benevolence is, I think, almost impossible for us as humans to perfectly live out or experience. I think a love of complacency we understand a little bit better. A love of complacency is loving something that's worth loving. It's loving something that's worth loving. If I were to say, for example, if I were to be served a, a good steaming hot cup of coffee, and not that pre-ground garbage, but something that some brother in love has freshly ground for me, 
Even better if it's been put through a French press instead of an automatic drip. Something that I can smell. Something especially on a night like this where it's, what, 30 degrees outside that when I hold it in my hand, it's, it's heating me up. I can see the steam coming off. If I were to have that good cup of coffee and say that I love it, that's not a love of benevolency. That's a love of complacency. There is everything in that cup of coffee that is worthy of my love and affection. It's earned that love. It deserves that love. But that's not the love with which Christ has loved his church. It is not a love of complacency with which Christ has loved his bride. We have nothing within us worthy of that love with which he loves us. Nothing which merits it. Nothing which has earned it. There was no beauty in this bride before Christ redeemed her that was found worthy of that affection. Christ has loved the church, his bride, with a love of benevolence. Which is exactly that love with which husbands have been commanded to love their wives. Now I'm going to pause really quick before I, get, before I see torches come out. That is not to say for half a second. right? This is a comparison. It's not an exact apples to apples. I think, if anything, it's a how much more argument that Paul is making. Husbands, we are to love our wives as best we can with a love of benevolency. Not to say that there wasn't plenty of worth and value found in our wives. Not to say that our wives didn't, certainly they had ample amount of beauty and worth and value that drew us to them. But it is to say that that can't be the hinge on which our love swings. This is the love with which we've been commanded to love our wives. It's not a love based upon the loveliness of the object, but rather the goodwill, the benevolence. This is where Lewis got the term from, the benevolence towards the one you were loving. The aim of benevolent love is to do good, to bring about something beautiful, not to respond to beauty. It is to bring about worth, not to respond to worth. If I have a love of complacency for something, it's a response to that thing's beauty. But a love of benevolence is a love with an intended goal of bringing about beauty. So then it is a benevolent love which the husband is to love his wife. It's not to say that your wives are not lovely. Certainly they all are. Especially you you ladies gathered here tonight. Certainly you have ample worth and value and beauty. Certainly each of us here tonight, these men, are are, uh, certainly grateful. But it is to say that your love cannot be contingent upon the beauty and loveliness found in your wife. There's going to come a day where some of that initial beauty which drew you isn't going to be the same. It's going to have changed into something different. There's going to be days, there's going to be moments where you don't feel those lovey-dovey feelings towards your wife, men. And you cannot walk out the door on that day and say, well, she didn't hold up her end of the bargain, I'm out. Your love for your wife is to be a sanctifying love. A love which aims to bring about even more beauty, even more loveliness, 
even more holiness to the Lord. Why did Christ die for the church? To make her holy, to make her beautiful. This is the same love with which the husband is supposed to love his wife. There should be a sanctifying goal in our love for our wife to be able to bring her before the Lord. We will, in the same way that your elders here at New Covenant Presbyterian Church, on the day of judgment, your elders here, your ruling and teaching elders, there will be an accounting for that they have to give for their flock, for their care. There will be questions that the Lord asks myself and each of these dear brothers that serve on this session here. There will be an accounting for to be done. In a similar manner, husbands, there will be an accounting to be given for how you loved your wife, the sanctification that you brought about in your wife's life, how you loved her, how you served her. And this isn't an idea that's new to Paul. Paul is pulling on an idea that we find deeply rooted in the Old Testament. In Jewish weddings, they were a little bit different than our modern Western affairs. And in Western weddings, the groom stands and waits for his bride to enter in. That was kind of flipped on its head in Jewish culture. Before the bride was ever presented to the bridegroom, she received a cleansing bath and she was dressed in her bridal array. She was brought by her family the finest array of clothes and of jewelry, uh, the best of the best that their family could afford. And she was to look as perfect as she could before she was presented to her bridegroom on her wedding day. We see a picture of this in passages such as Ezekiel chapter 16 and Isaiah 61. Uh, Both places there where God speaks of adorning his people in fine clothing and jewelry as his bride. And this is what Christ has done for us, for his bride. He has clothed us. He has not just covered our nakedness, but he has adorned us with splendid garments of gold and silver and fine linens. He has decked us with a headdress. He has made his bride beautiful. There is no aspect of his bride, the church, that he has left untouched, unbettered, unsanctified. He washes his bride continually by his blood, by his spirit, and by his word. And so the question left for us as husbands, are we doing likewise? Husbands, are you daily leading your wife in the word and in prayer? That's not just the job of the pastors and of the elders. Each and every single one of you husbands and fathers in this room have a duty and a responsibility to those in your household. Is your guidance for her good? Is your goal her spiritual betterment and holiness? This biblically is not just giving her what she wants, but what she needs spiritually. The Lord has entrusted you with that endeavor. Your goal is her holiness. Her spiritual betterment, which ultimately might not always be what makes everyone happy in the moment. But that isn't to say there isn't benefit for you, husband. Paul, I think, throws a little bit of encouragement to us there at the end of Ephesians chapter 5, verse 28. Where he tells us that husbands should love their wives not just as Christ loved the church, but even as we love our own bodies. And he makes an argument of our benefit here, that there is a benefit that the husband gets in this endeavor. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes it and cherishes it, even as Christ does. 
Paul reasons that since a husband and a wife are one flesh, that to love your wife is not merely a, a matter of loving your closest neighbor as yourself, but actually loving your wife is a matter of loving yourself. So Paul is kind of reasoning it's only logical then. So for her good and for her sanctification, the husband, Paul reasons, should nourish and cherish his wife just as Christ does the church, supplying as best he can every provision needed. And so husbands, I'll leave it with this. Are you aiming daily, endeavoring daily to love your wife as Christ has loved the church? Unceasingly, sacrificially, sanctifyingly. If that seems too lofty, Paul gave you another little illustration. Do you love her as much as you love yourself? Do you think about her as much as you think about yourself? Do you think about her needs as much as you think about your own? Do you put that into action? Does she know that? Uh, this is where I know that I struggle sometimes, early on in marriage especially. Carly's big on, uh, what's that phrase, words of affirmation. I'm going to be honest, it doesn't do much for me. <laughs> and so there was a struggle early on in our marriage that, that uh, uh, other brothers, thankfully, uh, older and, and wiser than I, further along in marriage, brought to my attention uh, through conversations. You know, well, how often do you tell your wife? And I'm like, well, she knows. <laughs> but does she? Does she know that? Can she tell? And for those of you brothers and sisters that have children, this is the question I wonder already, can my children tell? Can my three-year-old Liam, can he tell vividly that his daddy loves his mommy? Can, can your children do likewise? How are you nourishing her soul? When others look to you and your relationship with your wife, do they have a clear display of the gospel? of how Christ has loved and laid his life down for his church, his bride. Husbands, love your wives even as Christ loved the church, unceasingly, sacrificially, and sanctifyingly. Let's go to God in prayer. Almighty God, gracious Father, we thank you. We thank you for your word. We thank you that you've supplied therein everything we need. Father, we pray that you would help us as we go into a new week, that you would help us to obey what we've heard. Especially for us as husbands here in this room, Father, that you would help us to love our wives better. And that as we think and reflect going into a new year on how we could grow in our sanctification. Father, yes, we want to memorize more scripture. Yes, we want to, we want to learn more doctrine. Yes, we want to read more books. But Father, would you help us to have it at the top of our list? and that we would love our wives even better this year than we did the year before. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.